I often wonder and worry about what my life would be like if I hadn't put on those dodgy old trainers that day and decided I needed to run for stress because um, it really is such a gift. And it doesn't matter how fast or how far you run, if, if you move, then, then you're a runner. And, you know, isn't this just such a beautiful community we're in now? I've met so many great people. Good everyone, that was Rachel Smalley. I'm Matt Raymond. I'm Eugene Bingham. And this is Dirt Church Radio, interesting conversations with interesting runners. I'm actually super excited to tell you that Scott Shoes and Chorus Watches are back open and you can buy from the website and they will ship shoes and watches within New Zealand. We're locked down. You can still buy stuff. It'll help a local business. And if you do, uh, you can either use the code DCRSCOTT or DCRCHORUS and get 15% off your order for the next four weeks. That's 15% off store-wide for four weeks. So you go to scottrunning.nz or chorus. .co.nz, which is C-O-R-O-S.co.nz for 15% off. And they have sponsored us from pretty much the beginning. Actually, before the beginning. Before the beginning of Dead Church Radio. Yeah, guys was there before the beginning. He was there before the beginning and he'll be here after the end. Do you know what sucks, Eugene? There's a heap that sucks at the moment, Matt. But what what are you thinking of? Well, lockdown sucks. It stinks, in fact. But... (laughs) Oh, I feel <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's like that David O'Doherty uh, skit for the life. If you've anyone, I recommend you look at David O'Doherty on the internet and uh, his song about life. But Wild Things uh, have come up with a pretty amazing amazing contest. Uh, the, it, it looks pretty stoked. Uh, the biggest VIP context contest that they've had yet, with thousands of dollars prizes. A week's free car hire, domestic flights, a ferry crossing to your dream destination, accommodation for seven nights, $750 worth of montane running gear, two pairs of Scott running shoes, two pairs of Jobo sunglasses. Yeah. Fuel. Yeah. Trail did, fuel. Trail stoke. Trail stoke. What, yep. What's it about? Well, you, you can, you can uh, enter this contest as a VIP member of Wild Things. And if you're not already a member of Wild Things, VIP VIP member, you can get 15 months for the price of 12 at the moment by using the code DCR2020. Make sure the D- DCR is in caps, actually. For what caps. an amazing community. So shout it. Yeah, yeah. DCR2020. And, and, I mean, who wouldn't want to go away with the person of your choice for a week's running in a dream destination? So, yeah, wildthings.club, DCR2020. Check it out. Further faster, New Zealand's number one independently owned outdoors retailer have been listed as essential and they are able to ship clothes, food, lights, unfortunately not kayaks, 
but everything else you can now order at furtherfaster.co.nz. I would heartily suggest, and I've been wearing it every day because it's been cold, um, the Montaigne Prism Jacket. Just fantastic. Brilliant. Synthetic down, really good. But if you go to furtherfaster.co.nz or indeed any one of these people we've talked about, support local businesses who are trying to earn a living and get amongst it. They'd really appreciate it and so would we. Radio. So, episode 90. We made it. Episode 90. I know. Wow, these See, episodes are just flying by, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like only 400 years ago that we did episode 89 with yeah. Terry Davison. Yeah, and yet here we, here are. we are. Gosh. Yeah. How Marching you, on towards a hundred episodes. We are. Yeah. How's how's I mean this you know, lockdown life we in Aotearoa today got word that there's gonna be a change in our in the system, but it's kind of basically a couple more weeks um in barracks, really. Yep. But everyone seems to be okay ish, I think. Yeah, I I mean I I I guess I have somewhat of a my, my view is of the, the people that I work with, mm. everyone's like, keep everyone locked down for longer. Mm. And that's because, you know, you've, you've never bet, you've never met a bunch of more committed, uh, probably frightened people in your life, yeah. but it seems to be working and let's just keep at it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, don't, don't cock it up. Don't go for yeah. your group runs. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's Please right. don't. Please just, don't. Please just don't. get through these next couple of weeks. Don't make life more complicated for Matt and his work colleagues. Please, yeah. people. And then um, we'll all have a party at the end. Yeah, it'll be fantastic. Right, that's right. You come around Eugene's house. Yep. I'll make hummus. It'll be yeah, fantastic. It'll be great. We'll get some dirt church <laughs> beers. We'll go for a run at Riverhead. Not in that order because that'll be bad. Uh, anyway, we, uh, yeah, in another episode, we basically don't get to hang out with each other, which I'm just gutted about, but it's yeah. for good reason. And, you know, we keep pressing on, don't we? And we, we, we're really, really, really grateful for all the messages of support and shout outs that we've had about us keeping on, keeping on. But, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of keeping a bit of a lifeline for us as well, isn't Absol- it? If we're honest. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. It is a real lifeline. It's a highlight of my week. And um, yeah, your support means a lot uh, to us. So, so thank you. And, mm. you know, it's been heavy, right? This has yeah. been a heavy time. And this episode is, it's deliciously heavy. Yeah. Um, because A, we're talking to person with probably the most well-modulated voice we've ever had on <laughs> Dirt Church Radio. Um, but Rachel Smalley, her story mm. is just fantastic. Astonishing, really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you and you and Rachel go back a, a, a long time, you know, yeah, well, TV3. Th- yeah, we work colleagues at TV3, um, have known each other for years and obviously have this connection through running. Um, she's, you know, uh, yeah, she's a, a good person. And, and gosh, what a story, you know. Uh, an an amazing story, not just about running either. Yeah. So we'll, and and I don't kind of want to, sorry, pardon me. I don't want to embellish the story too much because I don't think I'll do it justice at all. So wait here. Stick stick around. Stick around. It's fair to say that the conversation will leave you with a lot to think about. So Matt, I mean, you kind of touched on it, but how, how have you been? Yeah, I, look, I've been okay, man. <laughs> like, mm. 
march into the sea, and that's what it is. Um, interestingly, I had my first day last Friday where I started to get a little bit over things. I started mm. to kind of uh, put my head up above the parapet a little bit and, and sort of perhaps a moment to reflect on the fact that I miss the freedom of going to get a takeaway coffee or I miss, you know, or I'll, or I'll go here, or I'll do this or I'll do that or whatever. And I kind of gave myself a bit of an uppercut about it, as you said, as you say so eloquently, hmm. because, you know, you just got to keep on keeping on and trust the process. But yeah, I really did sort of for the first time have a bit of a, you know, I can't wait for this to be over and um, returning to a bit of normalcy with my running. Mm. Which has been really nice. So ran five times this week. Good stuff. Which is yeah, it was really nice. Not knowing any of the volume that I've been doing, but uh, mm. you know, it was it was really lovely. Ran tonight with Lil when I got home, and nice. it was just yeah, things are things. I'm I'm quietly hopeful. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Just thinking about the the running volume. My running volume is is down to I don't know. Oh, quarter of what I was running, you know, earlier in the year in the build-up to Tarawera, but but I'm still running more than I'm driving, <laughs> which is it's a funny good. thing to think of, isn't it? Well, you know? yeah, God, I, I'm driving every day. It's, it's yeah. Well, I'm I'm, I'm I, my car gets to go out to the supermarket once a week, and that's it. So um, yeah, although I'm not running very far, I'm still driving more than that. But you know, the last two weeks I've done a virtual park run with some friends around where I live in Fenilpai. Um one of them marked out a 5K course that takes in all of our houses. So at 8 o'clock on Saturdays, we each go out and start at our own gate. So we'll stick, sticking to our bubbles and, and we run run the run the course and you can run whichever way you want around it. And there's a few out and back so you get to shout at each other and, and wave as you pass on opposite sides of the roads, maintaining physical distancing, of course. But it's such a fun way to see your mates and, and give it a bit of a hone. But boy, I can't wait to go for a run in the forest with you again, mate. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be really good. Yeah, it's yeah. and I don't I I don't want to think about it too much actually. I just want to kind of yeah. get through and yep. Yep. and 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 get it done because uh, you For know sure. it has. Oh, it's, it's such an interest. It's I mean I don't know. Is this the great recalibration of our time? I don't mm, know. Mm. But oh gosh, look, there's certainly a lot to think about. There sure is. Speaking of which, hit, hit that oh, red sorry. button. Yeah, I'll do it. So as this coronavirus crisis rolls on, all of us are adjusting to new norms, aren't we? And, and you know, like many thousands of people, I'm taking a pay cut with work. You know, it is what it is. But for, for even, you know, more people, there's no, there is no job. And I've kind of, it's got me thinking, because I've, I've been there, um, granted, not at the same, not at the time of a, a global crisis, but I was made redundant a few years ago, and I know that it, it, it sucks. And I just kind of wanted to talk to that a little bit because I know what a kick in the guts it can be, and I know that it doesn't make it any easier that there are so many other people going through the same thing. I kind of remember at the time that I was made redundant thinking that running was going to be my salvation somehow, that I'd that I'd run myself into feeling better, but it didn't, and it, and it couldn't. And there was one particular moment where I remember I was at the West Coast Marathon out at Bethel's, and... I'd, I'd gone there thinking, right, I'm just going to smash myself into the ground. I'm going to make my, you know, I, I just, I don't know what. I just thought I really want to make myself hurt in a way that can kind of crush the disappointment and anger right out of me. But I was I was trudging up one of those terrific climbs out there and a friend 
ran past and he patted me on the shoulder. It, it was meant with kindness. You know, sometimes that can be really patronizing, but he, it was really meant with kindness. But it just sort of broke a spell with me. And I realized actually what was happening was I'd just been, was being weighed down by everything. I was carrying it all on my shoulders and I just, I started sobbing. It was for the first time really. And I, I knew then that the race, I'd had all these plans to do all these races, including this West Coast Marathon. And I knew then that those were nothing. I wasn't going to train my ass off to happiness. It wasn't going to happen. So I abandoned those plans and I just started running for myself to get out of the house, to get away from things, to think, to listen, to not think, to not listen. You know, running was never going to be my salvation, it turned out, but it helped. I used all the tools running had given me over the years, resilience, the ability to find a way through, to get me through. And, you know, I guess you just got to do it with kindness to yourself. You'll get there and running will help you, but it won't be your salvation, but it's there for you. And all the skills and tools that you've used, you've built up over the years through running will be able to find you, do it to help you and, and you'll find the path. And I just wanted to say Kia Kaha. Wow. Mm. Is that a rant? Thanks. No, that's not. <laughs> that's, um, no, that's about the furthest thing from a rant you can, uh, you can, you can be. I think that's a, a quite a heartfelt and. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just feel so sorry for so many people. And, Absolutely. You know, there are no winners in this whole situation. No, no winners. There's not. The whole thing sucks. Let's face it. Um, you know, for what you're having to go through, what your family's having to go through. Although, for people you know, who are struggling, you know, people who have lost loved ones, you know, I can't imagine what that must be like losing someone to this disease, no, to this virus when you can't be with them. You know, there's no yeah. winners. There are no winners. But I just wanted to say that is that was just something that, you know, I, an experience I can share that hopefully might help somebody in some way. And and thinking about that too, you know, you said there's no winners in what I'm going through. I wholly recognise the privilege that I have, you know, in this time. Like I and and those around me, like I I fully rec- recognise that my job is safe. Well, and that's hard. I mean, yeah, you, you say privilege. I don't I don't know if I use that word, but I know what you mean. But it, it, it's you know, everyone's got something to carry through this thing, yeah, haven't they? Absolutely. It's just far out. Can we get, can we stop it already? Yeah, right. yeah. Can we talk I, about news and stuff? Oh, sorry. You want to talk? Sorry. No, oh, sorry. no. And I'm say? kind of carrying on from that. I, I, I mean, I, I watched uh, Gareth Morris. Um, yeah. His 26 miles in 26 hours video today. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about it last week uh, based on Bo Miles and his, his famous one. And then James Kugler and his crew kind of – Offered up the challenge, and a bunch of bunch of people did it. And, and Gareth, who you know is a elite sportsman, uh, mm. sports person, you know, yep. Commonwealth Games bronze medalist, yep. uh, and the Queen's pair shooting. Yes, I hope yes. so. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and one of the most interesting human beings I know. Mm. Uh, he he talked about the fact that he's he's doing it hard in lockdown, and mm. um, he he his video. Is we should put it up on the show notes. It's it's yeah. fantastic. It's it's funny. It's sweet, and it's it's just got a really lovely tone. So mm. it yeah. was it was really um, so the the challenge is that you run a mile on the hour every hour for twenty six hours, and in the in between time you do something DIY. So I, I came away with a couple of couple of things. One, well, 
you know, I, there was a lot I knew about him, but I didn't realize how talented he was at so many DIY tasks, what a DIY shed. Um, and, and two, it's, it's clearly very tough to memorize the 42 peaks of the Bob Graham yeah, round. Absolutely. You know, and that's a funny little thing that he does. He's very clever at making those things, isn't he? And, and also a nice little shout out for DCR at mile yeah. six, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the fact that he comes away saying, the key lesson is I'm never going to do a backyard ultra. <laughs> never say never. Never say never. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. 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 We'll see him at, at relapse, I'm sure, one year. Yeah. Hey, I've I've been following um, Nick Willis on Twitter yes. for ages. He's he's become quite the philosopher. Ah. Yeah, it's interesting to see the approach of an Olympic medalist. You know, someone uh, somewhat of a legend in our in in the run, sport of running. You know, he usually lives in Michigan in the US, but he's been in lockdown in New Zealand, and he's you know he's adapted to it well. I would it would seem. You know, he's talked about I've made running. One of them he talked about I've made running optional in the last week. Some days are twenty minutes, some days have been two hours. It's been quite fascinating to just go with the flow and do what feels right at the time. Even did a triple day of twenty minute runs. So there you go. It doesn't have to be kind of all. You know, posting Instagram videos of doing massive challenges, doesn't it? You know, even for an Olympian. Each of those 20 minute runs would have been 10K, but hey, you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. He had a very acute observation the other day, though, um, when Jacinda Ardern, our Prime Minister, had said, Week three may in fact feel the hardest. We're coming around the bend, but we can't quite see the finish line. And he asked, Did Jacinda Ardern do athletics at high school? I'm guessing 800 metres. Right. Because <laughs> that's exactly what it's like in the 800 metres, isn't it? Mm. Anyway, hey, I did, I did also too, after our Strava art uh, abomination last week. No, I don't think it's an abomination. <laughs> I think sometimes you need to raise a middle finger or raise something else to the, to the universe. And just mm. like if you want to go in a field and draw a giant cock and balls or a <laughs> set of boobies or whatever. The universe should, is going to mess with you. You should know, but you should do it because, you know, like there is that howl into the darkness, you know, yeah. into the void. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So in kind of a way of absolving Strava, Strava art, I just wanted to mention that Camille Heron had posted something the other day. It was Strava art by 45 members of a Harrier club in Griffithstown, Wales, who had each contributed to the art piece by, by running into fields near them. Thank you to the NHS and all key workers. And they turned it into a collage and posted it. So there you go. Strava Art's not all bad. Yeah. And that's, mm. a, you know, I feel for my colleagues overseas. I feel for my colleagues oh, in the US. I feel for my man. colleagues in the UK. Yeah. You know, and I feel for, you know, it's so, yeah, it's hard. There are no winners. <coughs> there are yeah. no winners. But, but there look, are I'm, if you enter a greatest run ever. Yeah, which is the part of the show where we ask you to write in and tell us your greatest run ever. It doesn't have to be a race or a mountain summit. It might just be a run around the block or, do you know, using GPS satellites that men and women <laughs> have worked thousands of hours on to, write, to, to, to scroll something obscene on a, on a rugby field and, and, and cue you. Something that's sung to you for some reason and send it in to us at dirtchurchradio at gmail.com. And this is from James Styler. Warm regards from down south, Christchurch to be exact. After many months of listening to your podcast, yesterday's run prompted me to finally put digits to keyboard and write to you. It was a memorable day with two of my good friends joining me for 20 kilometres of a 53 kilometre road and trail run. 
The morning began with a familiar beeps and buzzing from my alarm on my chorus pace just before 3am on Sunday the 15th of March. I blindly made my way downstairs, got dressed in the dark and poured myself a generous bowl of muesli with an equally generous handful of homegrown raspberries. No coffee, unfortunately, due to our old Nespresso machine having the equivalent volume, (laughs) yeah, of a plane taking off. Needed the kids to remain asleep. By 3.34am, I was on the road and after a few easy kilometres, it settled into a nice rhythm. I ran the initial uneventful 22 kilometer loop out and back to my house whilst enjoying your Scotty podcast. No doubt the couple of the police cars that slowed down then passed me between 4 and 4.30 wondered why on earth I was doing and where I was going. Back at the house, I filled my pockets with pure gels. Sorry, I have to order some spring energy, but I've remembered that you <laughs> but I haven't removed your discount code. I replaced my empty 500ml soft flask with a full one, and just before 5.30, I was off to Hagley Park to meet two of my running buddies, Nick and Stuart. We're part of a small seven-member running group that goes by the name of Bubba Gump Rum Club. We sedately made our way down towards the Port Hills with Nick informing us that he had loaded up a few surprises for us on his watch. At around the 35 kilometre mark we found ourselves on gravel and shortly after that we took a hard left into a tiny track that had made a sheep track look like the size of a motorway. All of us managed to cautiously but continually move forwards and upwards, our road shoes somehow finding grip from somewhere on the rocks and dry mud. By the time we'd caught our breath out in the darkness, it had lifted and that we could turn the light turn off the single headlamp that we had. We stopped to take a few photos before descending. An earlier fall provided the opportunity for me to photograph my hand <laughs> landing heavily on a rock, and it had broken the skin. I'm sure the bruising will replace the blood over the coming days. We cantered back through the city at a steady clip, in good spirits, with fatigue not yet revealing itself to any of us. I said goodbye to Nick and Stuart at 47 kilometres and ran the 6k back home at sub-five-minute pace. Wow. Holy moly. Yeah, he says the fastest kilometres of the day, possibly spurred on by the thought of espressos <laughs> and my girls being awake. I'm sure I won't even remain, I'm sure this won't remain my greatest run ever forever, but right now I think it is. I'm targeting a four hour 50 kilometres at the Sri Chimnoi race early in May, and I'm grateful for every day that I'm able to get out into a beautiful country and experience things that most other people don't or can't. Nga mihi, James Styler. Wow. Thanks, James. It's That's amazing. Cool. Yeah. Those runs with friends. I mean, gosh, yep. wistful much. It's uh, mm. it's important. Right. One, one day, one day. One day. On to our main event. Rachel Smalley. Um, I mean, gosh, she's very well-known TV and radio broadcaster, journalist. She's a runner and came to running by her own admission relatively late. Um, and gosh, hasn't she packed a lot in over the last... Mm sort of 14 years, um, she got involved with the 261 Fearless Movement and what an amazing story. Uh, I don't want to go on about it too much, but, you know, without any further ado, here is Rachel Smalley. Radio. So joining us from the glorious west coast of Auckland in the uh, wonderful, at the wonderful beach of Piha is Rachel Smalley. Welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, so this has been a little while coming, hasn't it? We've been we've been talking about getting you on, and we're so excited to ha- to have you on. Um, and because we've sort of followed your your running journey for so long, and, and disclaimer, Rachel and I are former work colleagues and, and friends from TV Three days, uh, and so we just thought it was time to get you in and talk about your running journey. Perhaps maybe you could start with you know how you got into running. Well, it's interesting that you, you referenced the, the journalism because um, it was um, a few years ago now, I think probably 2015, and um, I think 
I wasn't really coping with the the, the stress of media deadlines. Um, and I used to get um, really uptight. You'd be in this uptight state all day when I made my deadline at six o'clock for the good old six o'clock news. And, and you were always racing around trying to arrange interviews and, and um, get things in the can, as we used to say, film things and what have you for our stories for the six o'clock news. And I would end up at the end of the night just being like a coiled spring and I'd have a um, really tight shoulders and a sore stomach and I couldn't sleep. It was just, it was madness really. And then one day really in just a, um, uh, a fit of sort of anxiety and fear and Lord knows what, just feeling really unwell, I rustled round in the bottom of a wardrobe and found a pair of old trainers, Lord knows how old they were, and put them on and went down to Piha and just thought I'm going to run. And um, I took off, as most people do, I think, when they first start running and you go off at a, a cracking pace. And I think I probably ran about two lampposts before I pulled over to dry reach and vomit eventually <laughs> uh, because I pushed myself so hard. Anyway, that was really where it began. And it took me a long time to um, get up to five kilometers. It would have taken me some months before I could run five kilometers without stopping. But I vividly remember that day and just the euphoria that I had made it. It was like running the length of New Zealand that I'd finally managed to pull mm. off this five kilometer distance over a period of months. But that's kind of where it all began, really just as something of a stress release. Why, why do you think it was running that you went to? Had you had any history with, with running? Um, I had done quite a lot of sport at school. Um, I was um, born and bred in Canterbury, and I went to a military camp school. I went to Burnham Military Camp. My parents owned a small farm near Burnham, and so that was the school for me to go to. And we weren't particularly brilliant academically, but what our school was great at was athletics and sport. And the reason was because we used to have the Burnham Military PT instructors who would take us for sport. So, you know, you didn't learn to swim. You did 20 lengths in an Olympic pool. And, you know, bull rush was fine at Burnham Primary School. And we had these fantastic soldiers who would always take us. And I and I loved it. And so did I have uh, any history? I loved athletics, but I had never been at a club or trained um, and, and lived on a farm. So I would run around and be a pretty active kid, I guess, and you'd run the school cross country. But I'd never had any... Um, competitive experience or any experience running, but I just think I knew that I needed to move. And I think running, particularly in Piha, there's no gyms around here, I think that was the easiest way um, for me to have some form of release, I guess. And building on your history with running, I mean, you started, you know, this <laughs> Burnham Military <-esque> Primary <laughs> School, rural Canterbury. How, how did you get into journalism from there? It seems like... Journalism, yeah, it was it was quite a leap actually. So um, I wanted to be a vet nurse, and well, actually, that's not quite true. I wanted to be a vet, but I knew that I would never be academically brilliant. I've got the concentration span of a cockroach, and I knew that I would, and I and I would never be able to be a vet. But I thought, okay, I could be a vet nurse, and I went and did a work experience as you did back then, you know, sixteen years old, and I went to a couple of vets, and <laughs> I kept fainting. 
<laughs> so they would take me in and I would be in the theater with them or, you know, and then it just got ridiculous. You know, a person would bring in a dog with barley grass in its ear and they put tweezers into the ear to get the barley grass out and I'd be on the floor. <laughs> and I remember the vet saying to me, love, I don't think this is the job for you. And, um, you know, I was from really um, good working class stock in Christchurch. And uh, my mother was like, right, you don't know what you're going to do. Um, she wanted me to be a flight attendant. I didn't really fancy flying. And so she enrolled me in secretarial school. Um, but while I was there, I kept applying for journalism. I used to love writing. Um, and I just constantly got kicked back. And that was when you would apply to the Christchurch Press or the Christchurch Star, and you'd be trying to get a cadetship. And I could never get one. So in the end, I went to um, secretarial school. I was an appalling secretary, but I was really good at typing, which was great, because that's a great skill now that you know, I went into journalism. Um, but I eventually worked for a stock and station agency in Canterbury. And um, the stock and station ag agency was called Rural Livestock. And we had um, stock agents out all around rural Canterbury. And they would call me and I would have to do all their advertising for the sale yards. You know, how many heifers, how many sheep and how many, Lord knows, bulls and what have you that they were selling for the, on behalf of the farmers. And I used to play around with my voice a bit on the RT back then. You know, you'd have to... Yep. Um, little little week uh, call on the RT, um, but I was there for about three years and then disappeared overseas uh, on my OE. So it wasn't until I came back and I kept applying for journalism. And ultimately, uh, one year I got into the Wellington course. I was about 26 years old and um, someone had pulled out and they'd gone through this long, long waiting list. And I was working for a bank in Auckland. They said, if you can get here in 48 hours, you can do the journalism course. And I was terrible at banking as well. And so um, my boss said, go. So I got my dad's and Sonny and drove to Wellington. And that's how my journalism career began. <laughs> wow, I never knew that story, having, <laughs> having worked with you. And gosh, yeah, the determination, it all makes sense now. <laughs> it's... um. Yeah, it was it was a long slog to, to get into journalism. But, yeah. you know, and then when I got there... Um, I just loved it. It was such an opportunity. I loved studying and I loved being based in Wellington for the course. Um, and then I got my first job out of there working in sport and radio. My my boss at uh, my, my tutor said to me, look, um, you know, you could do a bit of business. You've got a bit of business background or you could do sport. You know a bit about rugby and things just because I enjoyed sport. And he said they need women in both those fields. And I ended up going into sport. That's why I sort of cut my teeth in journalism and loved it. And then you, it's interesting you mentioning about the, the stress of deadlines and so on because, you know, speaking from experience, it, it, it can be a really stressful job. And, and you've been to some pretty hairy places. So, yeah, you know, how, do, how did you cope with that? Um, I have been to some, some pretty raw places. Uh, I've been um, through uh, a lot of Africa and to uh, South Sudan. Um, I've been up into... Uh, Afghanistan, uh, the Syrian border a lot. I've been into Iraqi Kurdistan and Jordan and Lebanon into Beirut. Um, it's interesting because I think I got to a space where, you know, knowledge is power, right? If mm -hmm. you know what the threat is and if you know what the situation is, it's much less frightening. And I uh, 
when I went to the UK the second time, uh, when I, I came back, I'd done my OE and then I went back again some years later. I worked for Sky News in the UK and I, I love the Brits. I think they're the world's greatest journalists. And I worked with some magnificent journalists when I was there. And because I had an accent, I could never be on camera. So they take they take people with accents now, but back then they didn't. You needed to be British. And I produced a lot of those amazing journalists and and I learned so much. I was producing, you know, journalists who were in, you know, Pakistan when um, Benazir Bhutto was assassinated. I was producing journalists in Israel and South Africa uh, and Gaza um, based out of London. And that's where I really just developed a, a really big knowledge base for all the conflict zones and um, some of the major crises of our time. You know, I was producing for Sky when they had... Um, you know, they had the shock and awe, the invasion of Iraq. Uh, so I, I had a lot of exposure to that. And I think with that came this incredible respect for the journalists that I was working for, a lot of knowledge, but also an understanding that what did I love about journalism? It's, for me, the greatest stories occur where race or ethnicity or politics or religion collide and typically on a border. And so they were the countries that I became drawn to because I had been producing these journalists for so long and I wanted to go in there and see for myself. So that's ultimately where my my career went. Um, a lot of it, though, I, I'll be honest with you, and this isn't great for journalism, a lot of it I funded myself mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to go into those places. It just I just knew some of the networks I was working for wouldn't have sent me. So, you know, for example, when I went into Afghanistan, that was kind of secret. I never told TV3. I was their foreign correspondent, and I um, just funded it myself and disappeared into um, Afghanistan for two or three weeks. <laughs> Didn't tell mum either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's certainly, I mean, you challenge your own narrative of saying, you know, I was fainting when they were taking, uh, you know, <laughs> a burr out of a cock spaniel's ear, and I don't have much concentration. <laughs> I mean, goodness me. I mean, and you, you talk about your love of these places, and indeed your first marathon was the Beirut Marathon. Yeah, I mean, what yeah was, it was. What was that like? So uh, the way, the journey to Beirut was an interesting one. I had been into, when the Syrian uh, refugee crisis first began, I had travelled across with World Vision to do some stories about the situation there. When I was uh, on the Syrian border, where uh, Lebanon is right on the border of um, Syria. We travelled through from Beirut to the Bekaa Valley, and that was where a lot of the refugees had come from Syria. And when I was there, there was one young woman called Hind who followed me around, and she was 13 and just the most extraordinary young woman. She was frustrated and angry. She wanted to be a teacher. She said, "Why? what is the world doing? I'm supposed to be at school. She was so angry and she wanted desperately her education. And she was just a really remarkable woman. She had four younger sisters and brothers, and she and a refugee tent, she'd set up a little school for everybody. She was just incredible. She was, you know, I looked and I thought she's going to be a real voice for the future. And um, she followed me around for the day. And when we came to leave, and she'd been so strong and so stoic. And when we came to leave, and it was hard to leave her, but I looked at her and she was just standing really stoically. I was with Chris Sisserich, a photographer. He snapped a a photo of her, um, which is is really symbolic for my work in Syria now. 
And as we went to drive away, she ran up and she bashed on the window and I dropped the window and she burst into tears and she said to me, please don't forget me. And it still makes me really emotional when I talk mm. about it now because I couldn't and it dominated my mind for so long. This young girl that there by the grace of God, we all go with our privilege and we live in New Zealand. And mm. she was just a young girl like I had been. You know, I did, desperately wanted to get into journalism at her age and here she was just wanting her education. And so I didn't forget her. And my journey um, into Beirut, really, Hind was the trigger for that. And um, I had come back and we had launched um, into a, a campaign. Um, I went back to Syria. We did a, we did a, a, another campaign uh, called the Forgotten Millions with World Vision. And the Herald ran that campaign. And, um, gosh, it's a long story, but the campaign ended up stretching a year uh, when the, the refugee crisis then went through Europe and into the Serbian border. We went up there. We raised in the space of a week about another $800,000 just reporting with refugees. And um, all the while, I kept thinking, what more can I do? And I was out running one day in Piha, just as the old stress release. And and I thought, why don't I take a marathon to the Middle East? Why don't I make New Zealanders understand a little bit more and see if I could take a team over there? And so I Googled uh, Marathon and, and Middle East and up came Beirut, and I thought, perfect. And uh, long story short, you know, a few months later, uh, I was towing the line in Beirut um, in my first marathon, you know. And it's pretty remarkable, Beirut. You know, it's got a checkered history. I love mm. it. It's one of my favorite cities on earth. Um, but what they do for the marathon is they just clear every car out of the city. They're just, they're just gone. And in the water, you're sitting on the Mediterranean, and the Lebanese military is there with a massive Navy boat with, you know, it's it's on-ship guns pointing at Beirut. <laughs> and that's how you run the Beirut Marathon. I mean, you've never been safer in your life. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's an amazing marathon, and, and, and what an experience, I have to say, to run your first marathon in the Middle East. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I was just trying to <laughs> – trying to uh, sort of sit with that. I mean, it's such a, it, yeah, it, just, um, it, it makes it's everything remarkable. Like, One of the things I did do when I went back for the marathon is that I really wanted to find Hind. And it was really hard because refugees, it's such a transient life. And eventually we found her on the other side of Lebanon. The World Vision team managed to track her down. They were extraordinary. And we found her. She was living behind um, um, a panel beating shop, a paint shop, a car paint shop. And she was pregnant and she had just turned 16. And I was so worried about her because, um, you know, women, they call it um, um, maternal mortality and it really affects a lot of young girls. But essentially, and in Syria, child marriage isn't a thing, but it is now with the refugee crisis because parents can't afford to feed their children. Mm. So their children marry off young. And then they can access, <clears throat> excuse me, some you know money from the World Food Program and what have you. But I met her, I saw her again, and and what broke my heart was that the fire had gone from her eyes. It really had. And she was, mm. she gave me a little uh, bracelet. I said, "No, you're a refugee. For goodness' sake, you need everything." I still have that little bracelet. Um, and she said, "I said, what of your education?" And she said, "One day, I I will go back to school." Um, but it was. Um, she was extraordinary, and um, you know, I, I follow her as best I can. She has applied for 
to be um, for the for refugee status, and I'm confident she'll get it as a young woman. Um, she was trying through Canada and through Australia and through New Zealand, um, but it was really hind and the desire to raise money and and make people understand what was going on over there. I felt that keenly. That's what led me to to run my first marathon. Wow. I mean, and and it just you think about all these big systems issues and 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 things that lead to refugee being refugees and you know the fact that you're running a marathon with a, a you know a frigate pointing its guns at you and and, <laughs> and, and, and and what Beirut is but it comes down to this you know this interaction with this young woman she's what she'd be 21 now yes yes she would be still you know just and, and it wouldn't it be so nice if there was a fairy tale ending and and everything like yeah. that but it's just that sort of that that human experience gosh and so I mean, your your running journey from then it really did take off, didn't it? You you applied yourself to it with vim and alacrity. Yeah, I did, and and I and I don't really know in a way why it took off. I mean, Beirut. I remember crossing the finish line, and that was at the that was the last thing I had to do in what had been a uh, an extraordinary eighteen months. And I was still working at that point on uh, News Talk ZB. I was getting up at 2.30 in the morning, doing my show, coming home, writing stories and what have you, and running like a mad thing. Um, and I was I was pretty exhausted by the end of it. And, and, and so Beirut was incredible, but it wasn't, you know, people talk about went to run New York and that was my first marathon. It was amazing. It, it wasn't that. It was almost this just – uh, I got there. I made it. I, I crossed the finish line and I knew that would trigger, you know, I'd done a lot of fundraising and I had to run the marathon to, to get that money, if you like. And we raised in the end about uh, almost $4 million through through that campaigning and, and the work that we'd, the editorial campaign that we did with the Herald and the marathon. And I think I probably had a bit of a, what do I do now? And I, and I don't, didn't really know. And I just thought, uh, I just need to keep running. But my my running did take off to a certain degree, but it's um gosh, when you think about it, it it was actually another uh, tragedy really for me that really set me off to run more marathons. I, I decided I would run a half marathon at Coatesville, uh, and that would have been in uh, twenty sixteen, and um. I ran this really great time. Well, for me, you know, I was, I'd only really started running and I um, was mid forties. Um, I, Coatesville, you know, for those who don't know it, it's gnarly, it's hilly. And, yeah. You know, I don't know why I entered it, um, but I just had this extraordinary race. And I really pushed myself and I think I ran um, from memory. I think it was a one hour 42, which was, which was pretty good for me. Um, and I, I think I finished second and um, no, I won my age group. I think it might have been like fifth or sixth woman home. Can't remember. Um, but I, I had a great result, and it was really extraordinary. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I hadn't ever run that fast before. And um, when I left Coatesville, because you don't get cell phone um, coverage where we were running, and I, about ten minutes down the road, my my phone. I left there after I'd run the race. I was feeling pretty chipper. My phone went and. Um, it was my stepmother, and she said, "I've been trying to get hold of you all day. Your, your dad's in hospital in Christchurch. He's he's really not very well." And I got a real shock. I, he hadn't been well, but I hadn't expected him to to deteriorate. And um, 
So I rang and on the way home back to Piha, I was organizing flights and I got a two o'clock flight. Um, and as I pulled into my driveway, uh, my stepmother called and she said, your father's died. And it, it was a, a, an extraordinary time. I'd had this euphoric morning and ran this great race. And then before I'd even got home, you know, I was told my, my father had died and I was on a plane at two o'clock that day flying to Christchurch for his funeral. Um, and I, it was, it was uh, an extraordinary time. And, and, and I've, I've, since then, I have always thought, you know, it was like my dad was with me that day. I ran a great race. And that was the first time I thought, gosh, I've got a wee bit of a talent, I think, for this. And I always look back now and I think, I think my dad was with me that day. Mm. Um, and the next year that Coatesville came around, I didn't know what to do and I couldn't really face running it. And so I took my son along and he did the little 2K kids dash and I ran that with him, which was great. Um, but I've run Coatesville ever since. And now I'm increasingly getting slower and I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, hills <laughs> and I'll different levels of fitness. And I just go and get through Coatesville and that kind of connects me with my dad. But, mm. um, but it was that race and the symbolism of what happened. And I thought, I, I'm, I'm going to keep running. And um, and that was after Coatesville, really, that my, my running really started to take off. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, mm, oh, that's, you know, it's, I lost my dad in sort of really uh, shocking circumstances. And I know how much it is painful. And I also know how much that then sticks with you in a running sense. I, yeah. And you connect, like, I, yeah, I connect rate, particular races with my dad as well. And it's, and it kind of, it's, of course, it's horrible and sad, but it's also inspiring and motivating, yeah. isn't it? And that can, yeah, it is. And absolutely. And I, every time I go, dad, that was for you, Coates. So, and, you know, I always, and I joke now, now that, you know, a few years have passed, I, and I always, you know, tears and go, Dad, why did you have to die on one of the toughest, mm. you know, half marathons? Could, you know, <laughs> couldn't it have been a flatter one? So I could do that each year. Christchurch but um, but yeah. I always know, yeah, exactly, Christchurch, Kerry, Kerry or something, <laughs> something like that. But um, I, I always know that I've got to have a reasonable level of fitness. Um, otherwise, the quads are going to take a bit of a killing on some of those hills and, and the hamstrings. So I always think I've got to get, I've got to get fit for Coatesville. Yeah. So, um, but that really, um, uh, you know, I felt that I had some some level of um, strength or talent for it. And, um, you know, long story short, um, later that year I ran, uh, I think it was Christchurch. And uh, I, I don't know how, but I ran a time that qualified me for Boston. And I thought, I wonder if I should try and, uh, and do Boston. And... And the interesting thing about Boston is that I can remember being a host on First Line, which was, well, it's now the AM show on TV3. And I, it was um, my program. I loved it. It was more of a more of a hard news program than, a, than the rolling style of a magazine show that it is now. We did lots of interviews. And I was on air on, in 2013 when the Boston bombings occurred in the marathon. And I wasn't a runner then. I mean, I wasn't running at that point. And I remember um, that we were trying to get interviews out of there and we had satellites and we booked time. And uh, I remember my producer speaking to me in my ear and saying, okay, I've got this woman called Catherine Switzer. I was like, who? 
Who? I, did, I mean, I wasn't a runner. I didn't know anything about it. And uh, and so I in, ended up interviewing Catherine Switzer in the 2013 Boston bombing, and uh, she was just extraordinary, and we had an incredible coverage. We stayed longer on air by another couple of hours that morning. And who would have thought that three years later I'd be lining up to run the Boston Marathon? Yeah. It, you know, it's, it was it, – and it was – an incredible time. It really was. Um, to, to, I would never have imagined that three years later I'd be running it mm. because I wasn't even running when I was interviewing uh, um, Catherine. But isn't it extraordinary how things in life play out? And, I mean, it, it's an extraordinary synchronicity. I don't know if you know, but, you know, Catherine posted up yesterday on Instagram. It was the 53rd anniversary of her running the Boston Marathon. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, well. I I ran Boston when it was um, the fiftieth anniversary of it. So it was you know, and and obviously you know I'm, I'm a um, you know a, a feminist. I, I totally like she was my hero once I understood who she was and what she'd done, and to be there on the fiftieth anniversary of when she ran it, and you know three years after I, 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 the coverage had come together, and it was a really um, symbolic year for me and. You know, people often ask you, what is your greatest race? And and it's really hard because of what, what are the parameters? I mean, the most fun or the toughest or the fastest or or just the most um, kind of overwhelming and life-changing. And I think for me, that would most certainly be Boston. And and the reason for that was when I was leading into Boston, I, I mean, I couldn't quite believe I'd qualified for it. And then I, you know, managed to get a place in it. And about three weeks before the Boston Marathon, I woke up one day. I'd been on a big training run around the Dunedin Peninsula. I'd been down there emceeing an event. I'd gone out, raced really hard, or run really hard, probably too hard on the hills. And I woke up the next morning and I had, I'm not kidding, it was like a light bulb sticking out the back of one of my knees. Mm. It was like an egg sort of light bulb thing. And I went uh, and I saw my doctor and she sent me off to a, a, a great, sports physician and he looked at it and he said you've got a baker's cyst and I said well can I run Boston in three weeks and he said I, I couldn't bend my knee and uh he was amazing and he said look I'm going to try and drain it just before you go and I'm going to punch a steroid into it and he said don't run until Boston and so you can imagine going into an event you haven't run, you've got this thing, this growth sticking out the back of your knee and thinking, oh, am I going to damage myself? Am I ever going to run again? Anyway, he, um, and yes, uh, he did say to me, do you want me to show you what I've drained out of your knee? And I'm like, no, I'll faint. <laughs> I don't need to see it. Um, but he drained it and immediately it came back up and he just threw a steroid in it and he said, you know, run with your heart. And so I was really nervous in Boston that I was going to seize up or I didn't know how it was going to go. And... Um, but I, but I lined up in that race and I ran a really quiet first sort of 21 case just thinking this is incredible. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. But I was still really nervous that it was going to get out of me. And, you know, it's funny how uh, things from your past come back and uh, at different times. And I always think every marathon has a story. And, you know, Boston's was incredible. I remember coming up towards Heartbreak Hill and – when I'd gone into Afghanistan, uh, when I was over there for the three weeks um, as a journalist, I was doing a story about the impact of uh, the war on women, on Afghani women. And we'd gone out into 
what they say, beyond the wire. So we were embedded with US troops up on the border and myself and a girlfriend, it was a bit like a Thelma and Louise trip around Afghanistan. I'm not kidding. <laughs> we went out in these uh, beyond the wire. We were both, there was two Humvee patrols that left that afternoon and we just jumped in one. And there was an anthropologist, another couple of people with some soldiers who jumped in the other. And we were out uh, riding in the Humvees and suddenly everything changed and the gunners went up through the roof. Um, suddenly we were flying, we were doing U-turns. And what had occurred was that the other uh, Humvee patrol had been hit by a roadside bomb and the anthropologist had been killed. Uh, there were two double amputees, a triple amputee, and two soldiers were killed as well. And by the grace of God, it's just horrendous, uh, the, the survivor guilt you feel. By the grace of God, we turned right and got into a Humvee and not turned left and got into one that they had got in. And uh, that stayed with me and still does for, for many, many years. And when I was out running and coming up to Heartbreak Hill, I looked across to the left of me. And when you run a marathon in America, um, the, the people who run marathons are pretty extraordinary. There's a lot of war veterans. And I looked across and there was a man, this, he had an incredible upper torso, big, tall, African-American man. And from the hips down, um, he was a double amputee, he'd lost both legs. And he was doing the marathon on crutches with two prosthetic legs, just swiveling his hips for 42 kilometres. I don't know how he did it. And I looked, I remember looking across and just having this moment of remembering being in Afghanistan and what had occurred on that Humvee patrol. And my hands just went up above my head and I just said, sir, you are extraordinary. And, you know, the American's so incredibly polite. And he turned around and he said to me, thank you, ma'am, and so are you. And, and, and I thought, here you are, you know, being fearful of this baker's cyst, which isn't dangerous, it's just annoying. And your leg, you know, you need to, <laughs> you know, put a little bit of, uh, put a little bit into perspective here. And, and as well as knowing that I was fit and able and thinking about 50 years ago what Catherine Switzer had been through and, and seeing that man. And I just thought, just crack on, love, just, just get running. And I uh, ran a great race. I think in the end, I, I ran like a couple of minutes off a of PB at that time, which was a, I think I ran a 3.39. Um, uh, I remember turning on to Boris and Av. I remember the crowds. And and I kind of thought, and, you know, everyone who runs knows you do this. Sometimes your mind goes off into a million places. And I ran the back half of that marathon just thinking all about some of the tragedies and what I'd seen and, and experienced in Afghanistan and some of those war zones I've been into. Um, but it was a really extraordinary day. And I think for that reason, forevermore, Boston will always be um, the race for me. It was, um, it was life-adjusting, life-changing, and just gave me such a remarkable perspective. Gosh. <laughs> and... I don't have a snappy rejoinder to these <laughs> to these stories. I mean, it's, it seems like it belittles it somewhat. I mean, and s since then, though, you've you've got involved uh, very much with Two Six One Fearless. Yeah. You know, Catherine's um, organisation, yes. her foundation. Can I mean, tell us about that. So um, I interviewed Catherine uh, just before I went to Boston. I was still working on the radio back then, and. 
um, I wanted to speak to her about the, the 50th anniversary. And um, she was a great interview. She's just fabulous. And and I actually contacted her. I wasn't aware fully about what 261 Fearless was doing, but I contacted her and I said, um, look, keen to do something in the space. I feel like I need to give something back to the sport. I've It's given me so much. And it, there's such a, a, a revolution over the last five, six, seven years in New Zealand. And if you go to any event, as you know, it's just swamped with women um there and and i and but i think there can be more of us we need to get more of us out there and so we, we ended up having a chat and um and then i met up with them uh, in new york as well and she said why don't you try and do 261 fearless in new zealand and now that the fabulous kate southern is running it um she is doing a brilliant job of all the administration and the marketing and what have you and um, I'm kind of her the, the wind under her wings and her biggest champion and I run a little um, group in Auckland on a Friday morning at six o'clock we meet on the steps of the domain and um, I just love it it's one of my favorite things we run maybe five or six k's sometimes we get women who've just started sometimes we'll get women walking I just it's just such a fabulous thing and I just it's just to get women moving and connected um and it's just a, a little way that um I think I think it's a way of me always maintaining that I'm I can't stop running because I've still got 261 fearless and I, and I want to run but it, it's just a lovely it's it's my favorite day of the week Friday mornings up and about and running with them isn't it just the best legacy of all that Catherine oh. did I mean you know once you know who she is you know mm. everyone connects her with that moment at Boston but Gosh, when you think about what she's given to the world, not just running, and to, and yes. to women especially, uh, yeah. I just, I just, you know, you couldn't imagine a better legacy than two six one fearless, which will just go on and on and on and grow. And and I, yes, and I think when you and we don't realise that we have so much to be grateful to her for because mm. there's other things that she did. Like yeah. I didn't realise this. I think the women's marathon only began was it eight. In Los Angeles, I think you know Catherine's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I know four, and up until then, women it was like it's just a little bit long for you, ladies. You know, mm. you do the shorter runs. And Catherine was like, you know, she's great when you talk to her. She talks mm. about, um, she'll, you should talk about, you know, the, the men used to think our uteruses were going to fall out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> she's very funny, but she was the champion who absolutely lobbied the Olympic yeah. Committee to get that included in the Olympics, and forevermore, I. You know, I've said to her, Catherine, don't you want to just retire on the beach with a glass of wine? Where on earth do you get your energy from? And I don't know where she gets it from. But she is just the most remarkable woman. And I think, you know, um, I always think what she achieved was extraordinary. But she's also the wind beneath other women. If she can get mm. other women to achieve more mm. than what she did or run faster than what she did or do something even more remarkable, she will. And I think that's a testament of an extraordinary character. You know, you're, you're prepared to diminish your own star to embellish someone else's. And and that is Catherine Switzer to a T. She's just a remarkable woman. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And we loved, we had her on the show uh, last yes. year, wasn't it, Matt? And, and, and yeah. yeah, amazing. I think I mean, I, she's just great. Yeah. The thing that struck me is when, you know, there's that very famous photo of her being assaulted by the yeah. race director and then her boyfriend at the time comes in and, you know, gives them the old don't argue. But um, 
when she put it like that, you know, she's, I'd always loved that photo because it was so striking and it was, but then she put it in that moment of like, this man was actually assaulting me because I had the temerity to dare to yeah. run his race. And, and had I had those other people there not sort of interceded on my behalf, goodness knows what might've happened, you know, like, yeah. and how that was sort of in that time, that was a socially okay, and b you know her going on about uteruses prolapsing and falling out. That was that was established. That was established knowledge. I know. Was so, and, and you know, whenever whenever I'd speak to um, young women or young journalists, and 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 Lord knows I've landed myself in you know hot water when I've you know been younger and and a bit more foolish, and I've you know put myself out there from time to time in, in my career wrongly and regrettably now at times. But there are other times when I've done it too, and I will argue with. Um, a number of people that no one will ever change the world by sitting on the fence. Yeah. Like you can't, if you want to bring about change, you kind of got to get a bit of, un, you know, it's going to be a bit of uncomfortableness really. And all you can do is, is know that history hangs heavily on the internet. You know, like you, right. you may be vilified for what you're suggesting or advocating now, but at some point, you know, in the same way Florence Nightingale used to say, you know, be a good idea to wash your hands. Um, you know, that might help us on the on the wards and everyone thought she was a bit crazy. You know, and it's and and in the same way now what Catherine did, and, and bear in mind she will tell you, I'm sure she did, a lot of her opponents were women. Mm, were women yeah. saying you shouldn't be doing that, get back where you're supposed to be. And you know, so I always use Catherine as an example when when um, you know, um, sometimes you know, people speak to me about being a bit concerned or troubled or worried, are they doing the right thing? And, you know, absolutely. You won't change the world if you spend your life sitting on the fence. Mm. Rachel, we, we've used sort of running as the, the thread of this conversation, I, I guess. It's been so fascinating in so many other ways. But just back on, on your running, you, you did, you became quite... I don't want to, I don't know. It became so much part of you, didn't it? Became, and mm. in, in, in the way that it can, it becomes part of your identity almost. And and that can sometimes be a bit unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, in the year that I ran um, Boston and, you know, that baker's cyst didn't come around from just happened to pop up. What, what that baker's cyst in the back of my name was triggered by was um, I became quite obsessed with running. I just loved it. It was my drug I'd found something that for my age, at least, I was, I was reasonably good at. I loved um, the endorphins, though. That was my thing. It was like a drug. And, um, you know, I always used to joke that in the 90s, people would go out and, you know, take drugs and go to a rave. You know, I would go out, put my shoes on and go for a run and have that same fabulous um, um, sense of, you know, just greatness. I loved it. Mm. And... But I started go, entering too many events and, you know, I think in the space of a year, I'd probably run, I think I'd run about seven marathons, which is just nuts. And um, there's way too much, you know, one or two a year is more than enough. And, you know, I, when I came back from Boston, you know, what I didn't tell you about that is um, I, came, I flew in and I landed back in Auckland and I went out of the international terminal and I went into the domestic terminal and caught a flight to Queenstown and the next day I ran the Rootburn Classic, which is 32 k's through the hills. Um, and so I was, you know, jet lagged. <laughs> so I was in a bit of a crazy space, but I was just so addicted to the running. Um, but I ran New York, uh, I ran Chicago, 
Um, I ran Christchurch again, and I just I just kept running. I did lots of trail. The trails around here before the Cody dieback kicked in were just amazing. Um, but what I didn't realize, and when I'm saying all this now, it's clearly very obvious. But when you're when you're on the treadmill of life yourself, you don't notice it. But I ran too much. And I was also doing weights to try and strengthen myself to make me a better trail runner. Um, and I was getting up at 2.30 in the morning to do a radio show. So I like it was just overkill. And um, I had a personal trainer at the time, Alex Flint, a brilliant man. And he sat me down one day and said to me, you know, what are you eating? And I was like, why do you keep asking me this? And he said, I'll tell you. He said, you're too thin. And I said, really? But And why it's easy to become too thin, I think, when you're doing weights and you're running is that you look really fit but actually your body fat is too low. And when you're a woman, particularly a woman in your 40s, it's a really dangerous place to go. And so I, I was pretty incredulous about it. I said, okay, what do I need to do? And he said, you, you know, go back to nutritionist, this great woman, Sarah Sinclair, who's an amazing um, nutritionist. And she measured all my body fat and she said, you're single figures. And I said, right, what do I need to do? And she said, you need to eat. And she gave me a great program. And I was, you know, cans of oh, sardines, ugh. Um, <laughs> but, you know, nuts and carbs and everything. But the problem for me, the problem for women when your body fat gets too low, it's, it's a long haul to come out of there. So my hair started falling out. My nails got really brittle. And my brain fade was appalling and I ended up you know your, your period stop everything grinds to a halt and I ended up going to uh, a specialist an endocrinologist to kind of look at hormonally what I'd done to myself and that was a really challenging time because she was she was great but she sat me down and gave me the lecture of all lectures and said I see women like you all the time you're trying to be thin and you're not eating enough I was like I'm not trying to be thin I just like running and I think you know I took uh, I uh, she took me on some other specialists and they all thought I had an eating disorder. And in the end, my saving grace was that they sent me to, um, to have a bone density scan. And that really reveals when you've got an eating disorder. And I remember being on the machine and the woman said to me, she said, God, are you an athlete or something? And I said, well, I do a bit of running. And she said, you've got like Olympic standard, standard bone structure, which I was so delighted to hear. I could hmm. go back to my specialist and go, see, can you help me? I don't have an eating disorder, but help me get better. And uh, they were fantastic, but it basically took a couple of years and I had to pull back on uh, certainly the volume of running I was doing. I needed to um, put on a bit more weight. And, and that's kind of where I am. In the last six months, I think I've found myself back in a, a happy place and I can, I'm certainly running slower, but you know, it's interesting. My heart rate is so much lower now. And I realized back then just what I was doing to myself and it and it's just because I've become become so addicted to it so you know as well anybody has to be careful but in particular as women you really can't afford to to let your body fat get too low because the implications are, are, are huge they really are that, that is, kinda, sorry matt go no you go please no i was gonna say that, that is such an important thing to hear isn't it it's so important for mm. for women and men to hear but you know as you say especially especially women because you think of running as so good for you, and yet you know if you, there is a point, there is a point. But where where is running for you now? How does it fit into your life? Well, I ran. I I ran uh, in twenty eighteen. I ran uh, the New York Marathon, and I was 
not well then, you know, my, but I but I thought I'm going to go and I, you know, I'll be able to run in under four hours. I'm going to make that my last marathon. The year before I ran, I, I just had the race of my life in New York. I was strong. I loved it. I felt like I was grooming Paula Radcliffe, but I wasn't. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, I had a great time. I just had the trip of a lifetime into New York. And I'd qualified again and I thought, um, okay, I'm going to go back. And this will be my tents. And I was running it for charity. I was running it for the Catwalk Trust. And I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to go back and that'll be my last marathon. And I was really arrogant, I think, to think that I could just go out and run New York because New York picked me up, threw me out and spat me out. I'd run nine great marathons and this was my 10th. And I crossed the line in tears, just an absolute shambles. I, my hope seized I, my body was broken, um, and I really looked at that marathon and for some months afterwards and thought, "There's a lesson in this. I don't, you don't, you know, I don't have to drive myself to always finish really well. Maybe I'm supposed to run nine really good marathons, and my tenth was supposed to be abysmal because there's a lesson in there. Maybe there's a lesson in there. And I had run Christchurch the same year I'd run New York earlier. And I'd run a time where I qualified for New York again. And I thought, what do I do here? Do I go back? Do I run it? And I'd entered. And I thought, no, you know what? I, I'm not going to run it. And then I thought to myself, you know, that's, there's a lot of people who strive to run this race and you've got an entry. Get your backside over there and, and, and run it one more time. And so I did. And I decided that I was going to run it like a tractor. I was going to put it in second gear and I was going to enjoy it. I was going to run with music and I was going to take it all in because New York had been so great two years ago and the year before it had been a leveler and it had taught me a lesson about looking after myself. And so that's what I did last year and it was just fantastic. I potted along. Um, there were people flying past me. I stopped and talked to people. Um, I saw so much more and there's a lesson in that too. I saw so much more because I ran it at a slower pace and I took it all in and, and New York is the marathon where there are so many stories. You know, you were giving a woman a hug at the finish line because she ran for the child that she had lost. And, you know, the number of war vets who are running amputees, the number of people in wheelchairs. And if you take the time to run New York with your eyes open, and I'd run it twice without my eyes open, um, you truly see the strength of what that marathon is. New York is like, I think for that reason, no other, it's it's a tough course. It doesn't necessarily attract all the champions, but it attracts the most remarkable characters. Uh, and there are so many stories there. And so New York was my 11th marathon. Uh, and I was super proud of how I just potted through it and ran it that day. And I've, I've said that's enough for my road marathons. I love trail. I love, for example, I ran Mototapu, um, the off-road, and that's a great event. So I I haven't said uh, never, and I am actually now thinking, look, these races have always given me so much, particularly in New Zealand, the great events we run here. And I think in the midst of COVID, off the back of that, I'm really keen to go out and do some events. And even if I'm, you know, the, the grandma out the back clapping everybody through, I really want to line up and support some of these events because they've given me so much from running and so much enjoyment and strength and so many lessons in life um so i, I haven't quite hung up my competitive mm -hmm. shoes yet but i certainly won't be running fast i i gently doubt that somehow i don't know <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm I'm fearful that the red mist may descend. However, um, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, gosh, what a, what a beautiful kind of, it sounds, I don't mean to be cliche, but it is a journey, isn't it? You've come from this place, you've found something, you seized on it, it overtook you, and now you've, you live with it as part of you. It's amazing. Hey, Rachel, it's been so wonderful having you on, and it's been such a, oh gosh, such an amazing collection of stories, everything. And I kind of feel you might have covered this off, but we ask one question of everyone who comes on Dirt Church Radio, and that's, hey, Rachel Smalley, what's been your greatest run ever? And I fear you answered that question. Flip yeah, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's interesting because every, every single run you do, I think, has a story. And I can look back over every event from, you know, Taupo half and, you know, trying not to get hypothermia and what a great run I had that year. Um, Queenstown, you know, the, the, the very first half I ever ran was the very first Queenstown, inaugural Queenstown race. And that feeling when you do your first half was just uh, amazing. And, and you know, the, the, the run I had in 2017, and New York was just a, a magic. And running through Central Otago when I did uh, Lotutapu. So it's really hard for me to put, uh, you know, what was my greatest run. Part of me thinks it was my 10th marathon where it broke me because I think that's probably a lesson that I got from that race for life, which is, you know, it's a cliche again, um, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. And that's what that marathon taught me. And that's now influenced my running so much to to pause, to eat well, to enjoy your running, to, you know, stop and smell the roses every now and then. Um, so I, I guess really it's possibly that marathon, but it's all of them together that have given me so much. I often wonder and worry about what my life would be like if I hadn't put on those dodgy old trainers that day and decided I needed to run for stress because um, it really is such a gift. And it doesn't matter how fast or how far you run, if if you move, then, then you're a runner. And, you know, isn't this just such a beautiful community we're in now? I've met so many great people through running and so many great personalities. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of aroha out there, I think, in the running community, a lot of support for people. And I think coming out of journalism which is a very isolating field very competitive field running's just brought this big wedge of love into my life and connection and humanity and for that I think I'll just always always be grateful to this great sport wow Rachel Rachel thank you yeah (laughs) thank you thank you gosh that was it's been so yeah. It's been so interesting to, tr- I mean, sorry to kind of natter over the top of that. It's been so interesting to track the people that we've had on throughout this process of being in lockdown. It's been extraordinary. It's been very strange, you know, not being able to see each other, uh, Eugene and I being separate, consumed by different things. And every person that we've had on through this period has offered something very discreet and very special about, and it seems to reflect almost unconsciously. I'm not sure if everything's interrelated or what, but thank you so much. It's it's everything you've spoken of is just so germane, I think, to what's happening at the moment. So thank you. Well, thank you guys. I mean, what a what a great um, 
little system you have here, Dirt Church Radio. I love it. It's um, <laughs> it's brilliant. And, you know, I mean, um, it just brings everybody together and is such a great connection. And, and I think now more than ever, um, that's what we need. Um, but but thank you thank you so much it's been a delight it's been quite a journey for me to do this podcast too remembering all of this but um, I certainly want to don my shoes and go out for a run tomorrow and think about it it'll be great I, gosh just yeah trying to follow that stuff up trying to follow up some of those just beautiful anecdotes well, not even anecdotes just those yeah, I mean, there are moments, Matt and I usually do the interviews together in the same room and, you know, you can communicate uh, through your body language about, you know, where the kind of questions are going to go. But because we're a little bit hampered, because we're both, you know, we're sitting in separate bedrooms um, across, the, across the river from each other, really, uh, you, you can't communicate in that same way. And so there were long moments where we were just... I think both sitting there with our jaws open, <laughs> we're not Absolutely. quite knowing where to go next. Yeah. Astonishing. Yeah. Astonishing. And I'm sure you probably had the same experience uh, listening to it. So thank you, Rachel. Mm, it really absolutely. was so much more than we expected, either of us. Um, and we're really grateful that, that she was so open and, yeah, giving in the way that she told her story. Yeah, very generous. Mm. All right. That's it for this week. Keep safe. Keep at home if you have to be at home. If you go out and work, thank you so much. Um, we'll hold it down for you. You hold it down for us. And uh, let's keep these things going. So we're on social media at Dirt Church Radio. Email at dirtchurchradio at gmail.com. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. And you can download direct from the website, which is dirtchurchradio.com. Yeah. If we're not where you are. No, if we're not. Why do I always say that? We're not where you are. Yeah. We shouldn't be where you are because you're in your own bubble and we're in our bubble. So if we're where you are, there's trouble, right? But if we're not, if we if you can't find us where you want to find us, let us know. We'll find a way to get there. Um, you know, but if you... What a shambles. I've really Do you know the what pack. the today word for bubble is? No, tell it's me. It's middle Oh, nice. Yeah, nice, eh? That Brand. is very nice. Thanks, yeah. for saving, thanks for saving me, Matt. It's all right. Don't forget to, to write in with your greatest run ever. We'd love to yep. hear from you. Um, thanks to everyone who has taken the time during lockdown to send us their greatest run ever. Yep. We'll get to them. Thanks to our sponsors, Scott Running for the Faster Spring Energy, CLE, and thank you to our Patreon patrons. Like, Thank you for your generosity. Thank you yeah. to Wild Things, New Zealand. I know lots of you are taking advantage of the yes. uh, special extended DCR VIP experience. Thanks to our editor, Kieran, uh, and we've got a really great guest lined up for you next week. Um, really great guest. So yep. tune in then. Kakite and Ka keep safe in your middle middle. Kia kaha. Thanks, Rigby. <laughs> <laughs>